Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Jimmy, you were born um, in, in South London, in Tooting. Tell us about growing up in your family. Uh, we're a very close family, very loving family. Um, you know, my mum was my best friend, even though I used to cause a lot of heartache um she was always there for me and i started playing snooker when i was um 12. i started playing pool first in a pub called the duke of devonshire and then i went moved on to the snooker club and um after a couple of years um i was playing truant all the time and my how old were you here jim i'll be 13 14 and my headmaster Mr Beatty at the time see that I had talent and obviously my schoolwork wasn't up to scratch so he we done a deal which obviously if we'd done it now he'd be arrested but <laughs> where he let me as long as I went into school in the mornings I could leave at 12 o'clock and play snooker all day I mean so. can't I mean let's be fair this this is not a million years ago but you can't imagine any educational authority wearing that now can you absolutely <laughs> you know and I owe him a lot uh, Mr Beatty's name is a really lovely guy Tell us about your brothers and sisters. I mean, and your dad. What did, what did your dad and mum do? My my mum didn't work. She was a housewife uh, and a mum. And my dad was a carpenter. And uh, before that, he was a coalman. He had uh, a few guys work with him. And uh, very proud man. And for the last 20 years, well, last sort of, he lived with me for the last 10 years, me and my sister. He lived with us. You know, he actually died... Um, when he was 88 years of age but every day of his life he was out with a racing post in his pocket a suit on and he was he travelled with me for 20 years uh, wow. uh, he was a great great friend of mine as well as my dad loved him dearly brothers and sisters my brothers um, I have I had three brothers we lost one that we're going to talk about later yeah. and uh, my sister Jackie um, she's like a mother Teresa lady and my brother Tony is one of the nicest guys you could ever meet and my brother Tommy um, I don't see him that much because um, he's. I'm always away and all that, but I love them all very dearly. Uh, you, you talk about the uh, taking up pool and snooker at a very early age. I mean, how did you find out that you were talented at the gym? Well, what I was do what I was doing was m m I used to spend Fridays with my dad when I was like eleven, and I, I used to meet him in the pub. And in them days, it wasn't such a bad thing to be in a pub. You know, some people might disagree or not, but um, it was where the people paid the wages and that my dad would be there and these guys would come in and it was for about six months I sat in the sat in the corner of the pub and then there was a pool table there then I started playing pool 
and obviously like I've got kids myself sometimes you like you give them let them do things to entertain themselves and I've played pool for about six to nine months and then I was totally fascinated by these balls going in pockets and then when I went into the snooker club in Zans and these massive like tables 18 foot 12 foot tables and you know I was just um hooked and uh that's that's where I just learned to play snooker was in a club called Zans well, in Tooting. As I say, people will forgive me for mentioning your book several times. It's your second biography. It's called uh, Second Wind, and I've had a chance to go through it, and uh, I found myself laughing and also going, really? A lot of times in it. It's a very straightforward, very honest book. Um, and the, the place Zans that you mentioned in the snooker club, it appears to be a... It's, it's almost like something out of a, a film or a TV series, isn't it? I mean, tell us about, about the kind of well, atmosphere there. Well, it was an amazing place um it was open 24 hours even in then days and i don't know if that was legal or not i don't know but um you had you had 16 tables which would be going 12 hours a day you had all sorts of characters nobody everybody done their christmas shopping in there come come like a week before christmas it was like its own um sort of supermarket of electronic goods and all that but there was some good characters in there and obviously there were some bad characters but in them days you know if you robbed someone's house you know done a terrible thing like that you was outcasted you weren't allowed in the snooker if you was a burglar because you know that was a terrible thing to do so you had you had good and bad but a great atmosphere a great education for me let me, you know, ask, let me ask you a up. question now. Now that you're a, uh, a man of uh, certain uh, experience, would you let your kids go to a place like Zans? Definitely not. <laughs> we know you're down at the uh, Zans, and uh, you start to become very, very good at, at snooker very quickly. And I think you started to make money at it, even while well, you're still an amateur and going around the country making money, even as a teenager. Well, me and a guy called Tony Mio, who was a great snooker player, tremendous himself, player himself, yeah. And um, uh, there was a guy called Dodgy Bob who um, he had a black taxi. And he used to take us round the country playing for money. Now, in them days, there was no internet, and there was only like snooker was popular. There was only like three channels at the time. And um, what you're saying is, just to remind people that at that time, snooker was just ginormous in this country, and, and people who were snooker stars, because it was on the TV all the time, were yeah. huge. Well, huge it was just stars. it was the Higgins era before yeah. myself and Steve Davis. And what we'd do, we'd get into this black taxi, and he'd literally just put his a pen in the map and we go somewhere like Sunderland now when we go to this place like Sunderland you'd have the best player in Sunderland who beats everybody all these they'd hear that we walk into the club and say to the manager we play anybody for any amount of money please phone them and they'd come from miles away. like the hustler like the film the yeah, hustler but we wasn't, yeah. yeah but yeah. we wasn't hustling because no. we was just beating them because the local player would beat the other guys on a regular occurrence, they just think, well, these two whippersnappers can't win, and we clean up. Because they, 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 would, they would put up the money for the local champions player. Absolutely, yeah, them, yeah, because he used to beat them. So, and then we just go absolutely anything. And on a few occasions, we smelt that it was getting a bit heated, and we sort of we would just say, look, we don't even want the money, and we just leave because it was the safest way to get home. Uh, and Dodgy Bob, did he get a cut of this? Dodgy Bob got 80%, <laughs> we only got 20%. But we still made thousands, you know, and from being like 13, 14 years of age to having, you know, to being, couldn't believe we had 20 quid to sort of all of a sudden have three or four thousand pounds in your pocket. I think that was a bit of a downfall for me because I had no 
value for money at all until you know later on in life well we'll talk about all the money you blew a, a, a little later and what did you do with the money in those days um, clothes and stuff was it uh, well well i'll be about 14 15 yeah. now and what i would do is um unfortunately i'd brought up in a gambling environment so it was basic, racing post yeah it was basically from the snooker club it would go to the dog track and if you had any money it was a casino but you never worried about it because you just think the next day you just get some more money and that's you're 14 15 what do you mean casino oh i know well you had like illegal casinos all over south london <laughs> does, does the mayor know about all this i can't believe no this is years ago this is literally this is literally like your your life sounds like an episode of minder absolutely it was completely like and and did you ever see bobby box the yeah, poker to- the poker oh, program yeah. that was that was what it was like there was card games everywhere you start to take the sport seriously. I mean, you've got to get into serious tournaments and you're very quickly a top amateur player, yeah? Well, I won the English Amateur Championships. In um, in them days, you had to win the English Amateur Championships to get your professional card. So you decided you were going to become professional, did you? Yeah, and I won the English... Because you needed more than 20% and Dodgy Bob was giving you. Dodgy Bob was gone then. Yeah. I, and I, I won the English Amateur Championships at 16. And I 1979. Yeah, and I could have gone to the Crucible um, 79 and 80, but I wanted to win the World Amateurs, so I waited two years and I went off to Australia and won the World Amateur Championships. I would have had two actual, two more years at the Crucible, which, looking back now, would have probably been a mistake. But on my CV, I wanted to win the World Amateurs. I mean, you... you, you you were, you were good enough to win the World Amateur. Were you good enough? Do you think if you'd gone to the Crucible at 16 and 17 years of age, you could have made progress? How far do you think you'd have gone? I don't, I don't, I, well, obviously, I can't answer that question because it never happened. But I think I, um, I, I would have had a good chance. Steve Davis, when he won it in 81... He beat me 10-8 in the first round. I was 6-3 down in the first session. He beat me 10-8, and he went on to win it, and then he started to control the game, and he improved all the time, and I was improving, but my game was a bit more attacking and a bit more trying to win it in one visit, and Steve Davis was a bit more careful, and um, and then obviously I hit the nightlife and uh, went the wrong way really well you, you, having deliberately stayed out of the professional ranks to become a world amateur champion i think we should just gloss over that in 1980 as you say uh, in tasmania australia you became the youngest ever winner of that title how did that feel for you oh no it was a phenomenal achievement i went um we then come back from australia and we went to um india and i won a tournament there and then from India, I come back, turned professional, and I won my first two tournaments in uh, Belfast in the King's Hall and then in uh, Scotland. So it was a real good year for me. I'm gonna uh, Later on, we're going to hear how your life has got pretty messy at times, Jim. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any of the trophies you won when you were a kid? I have still? all my trophies. you got yeah, all of them? all my trophies. Oh, that's fantastic yeah, to hear. A guy called uh, Archer McLean, who, who, who'd done a, um, a game called whirlwind snooker it was before its time mm-hmm. in the early night he he's he's got all my trophies in his house and a, and a couple of snooker tables oh no that's that's really good because yeah. it could easily have, have, have gone uh, no they the could have got left in cars and all sorts all of sorts of terrible ma- things i always managed to keep my trophies good man well listen we're going to hear now from somebody oh, i know it's a great maze of yours but also had the, uh, the the privilege of seeing you growing up becoming a top amateur player and following you into the professional professional game he himself of course is a top professional player player himself and of course one of the great commentators on the game it's a very big hello to john virgo hi john hi donny how are you very good say hello to jim hi jim you all right jv how are you my man I'm okay. John, you know, uh, you, we've been hearing from Jimmy about, you know, growing up in the snooker clubs of, of South London. Do you remember the first time or the early times you saw him playing? 
Yeah, I do. I remember distinctly. I was living in the north at the time, and they had a tournament uh, in Enfield, and uh, everybody said, oh, we got to look at that young 12-year-old over there. And uh, that was Jimmy. Yeah, and uh, even then you could see the talent. I think anyone who can win the English Amateur Championship and the World Amateur Championship at that age, you know, you're not relying on uh, the tactical side of it. You're just relying on natural ability, and that's what Jimmy had, you know. I mean, he's, I, I, I went to see him playing all these games at Acton in... Uh, Fisher's Club in Acton when he played in the, uh, the English Amateur Championship to qualify for the final at Teston in Cornwall. And, uh, yeah, just natural ability and just a calmness around the table. And if there was a couple of reds left on and he could win, he'd clear up all the time, yeah. And, and, Phenomenal. And, John, you, you may see lots of uh, young kids with that kind of talent, um, but is it, how, did you know that he was going to take this through into the professional game as well, even then? Well, I thought so, mainly because of the temperament. I mean, when we, uh, you know, if we talk about Stephen Hendry, I mean, his temperament was second to none. And I think that's what Jimmy had, you know, his temperament and just a great belief in his ability. And his natural ability shone through all the time for me. And what about the, the fact that, you know, um, you've mentioned Stephen Hendry, Stephen Davis, of course, is a contemporary as well. Um, these boys have uh, won, you know, myriad world championships, and yet neither, I dare say, are as popular as Jimmy White with the general public. Why, why do you think that is? Why is Jimmy so popular? Well, I think the main reason is that uh, you've got to be nice to people, and Jimmy is. I mean, he isn't aloof to people. I mean, he's always been accessible. And I think a lot of uh, other players just keep the public at arm's length. Jimmy's never done that, really. And uh, as people will tell you, he's one of your own. You know, and that's great to hear from people when they say that about Jimmy. Looks like I'm buying dinner again. <laughs> again, yeah. We've got somewhere nice this time. I'm sick of those Burger King. <laughs> John, a final question, John. Um, look, we're going to hear later in the programme how uh, Jimmy White never quite won the World Championship. Can we still yeah. call him a great snooker player if he's never been world champion? Oh, one of the all-time greats. There's no doubt about that. I mean, yeah, just by virtue of the fact that you win a world championship that over 17 days in Sheffield, I mean, that determines a man's career. I mean, that is silly. No, one of the absolute all-time greats and won everything else and done everything else that the game had to offer. It'd definitely be anyone in anyone's top five players ever that have played the game. Well, that is, that is uh, some testament. Thank you very much indeed, John Virgo. Danny, pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Take care, Jim. God bless, John. Speak to you soon. There, at least, is uh, from the, you know, someone who's an expert, the view that Jimmy White is uh, one of the top five players of all time, and that's uh, something I won't hear an argument about, and that's why he's one of the reasons why he's here today. Um, before we get into your run of world championships and all the rest of it, talk about your early days as a professional. Um, did you did it go as well as you'd hoped? Did you enjoy it? Those sorts of things. We was having a blast, you know. Um, we was here, there and everywhere. People recognised us. We was like pop stars, you know, in the early 80s. We was um, we was going to nightclubs, getting roped off. You know, we thought, well, this is the life. And, you know, girls were giving you second looks when they never even noticed you was there. So it was an amazing sounds terrible, time. Jim. It, it was a good. terrible way to live. It was great fun. It was great fun. But when you're living it, you you know, you, you don't realise that it's not really reality. Did you ever get yourself into much trouble? I got myself into trouble all the time. You know, I never hurt anybody. I never, I never done anything to anybody else. All the, all the harm was for me, really. You know, I didn't, uh, I didn't.
didn't prepare right and uh, I'd hang over most of the time and then all of a sudden, obviously, I then found the cocaine, mm -hmm. which, because I was a big drinker, the cocaine would keep me going and, um, you know, the few hours of drinking went into days. You, uh, in, in many ways, picked up the crown of being the people's champion, everyone's favourite player from the Irishman, Alex Higgins, had gone before you. But there's more to it than that because the two of you actually um, ended up being lifelong friends um, as well as rivals. Tell us when you first met uh, Higgins. Well, I met Alex Higgins. I went to watch him play when I was 13. And um, the f before that, the first time I ever see him play was in Pop Black when uh, he had the um, he had the black over the middle pocket. And he was the wrong side of the pocket. So it was a straight up and down shot to play off the top cushion and potted the black. And he played it off three cushions with check side and from that moment I was in love with his game and then I met him when I was 13 I played an exhibition with him in my dad's club in Ballam um, Tony Mio was there that night Willie Thorne and um, you know to have him in the same company as us you know I was in awe of him and uh, I become his best pal in snooker and we won the world doubles together the Moscone Cup and obviously that famous 82 semi-final when he done that amazing clearance to beat me to win and then he went on to win the world championships but Alex Higgins without Alex Higgins you wouldn't have this um Snooker wouldn't be at the heights it is today. He made the game, he's flamboyant play, he's shot maker. Obviously there was um you know, a bit of a downside to Alex where he could you know, he he was a quite a bad loser and uh, referees used to get blamed and all that. But this this wouldn't last long. I used to sort of laugh at him and say, you know, like snap out of it and then we'd be fine and um I went on the road with Higgins when he won the eighty two world championships and um an unbelievable character. Someone stole this this guy who was driving us around in a mobile home stole the World Championship trophy because the promoter had not paid him and he knew the law and he had Higgins' um, World Championship trophy and the police come and the TV come and Higgins being Higgins, he went on the TV cameras and he said, well, you remember the World Cup when a dog nicked the trophy? A dog's just nicked mine. <laughs> um... You were much younger, of course, different part of the world. How did the relationship work? I mean, how did you enjoy each other's company? Well, we both had bad habits. You know, I was a, a he, he was a compulsive gambler as well, and I was a compulsive gambler. He never took cocaine, but he used to, he used to like to drink, and um, we was, you know, we, we we used to get on quite well. And because we was both famous, him especially, you know, we used to get the treatment wherever you went. We used to, you know, we was living like rock stars. Well, I mean, what did you talk about together? What was it? What did you have in common? Was it the gambling, the horses and stuff? Uh, or was the, it the snooker? What did you have? In, what did well, you talk about? All sorts of things, mainly mainly gambling and snooker, and just having fun. You know, we was just uh, we was just like living on a. It was like being on a roller coaster. You know, we was. Uh, it was it was a hundred miles an hour all the time. A lot of fun, and you know, obviously there was a few down days, but. Um, I loved him very much. I still miss him very much. Let's talk about that that semi-final of the World Championships in 1982. I mean, you're still a kid. Yeah. Um, he is, you know, what the star of, of, of world snooker. That semi-final has gone into uh, into kind of snooker sporting history, I guess, hasn't it? Well, he done a he done a clearance against me where um, O'Sullivan was talking about it the other day. He potted about eight balls, which were all miracle balls in the same break. He was out of position four or five times. and he I was just, watching on a YouTube last night. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Extraordinary. He just kept picking these pops out. And um, 
funny enough, as the years have gone on, I I've become um, where I know Jeff uh, John Virgo from was a club in Potters in Manchester. I used to go there a lot, and Higgins used to play out of there. And there was a guy called Motoring Martin, who used to. Um, <laughs> of course, there's a guy called Motoring Martin. Yeah. He used to uh, <laughs> motoring because of his amount of drink he could have. He was bringing Higgins a drink through that tournament. Nothing to do with me. He was just there with Alex Higgins. And he was bringing him large vodka and oranges. And uh, if you look back on the, that match, mm-hmm. you can see that he must have been brought 10 or 12 large vodka and oranges, Higgins. So he wasn't, shall we say, sober when he beat me, but nothing against what he'd done. It was an amazing clearance. What do you feel about so looking back on that defeat? Because you might be world champion that year. Uh, well, yeah, but uh, I look back at it, and um, the way I was going, you know, the way I was heading into this lime, the limelight, and thinking that, um, you know, what I, I was indestructible. You know, I might not be here talking to you today, so it might be a blessing in disguise not winning it then. Uh, the the latter stages of Alex's life, I mean, obviously he was ill and we saw these desperate pictures of him and there were court cases and violence with people. Was he a wild man? Um, he, he, toward, you know, towards the end, because he, he got a bit bitter, you know, he... he um, he had a few court cases against the WSA um, because they banned him when they shouldn't have banned him. He would have won them, but a solicitor couldn't keep him to have four or five meetings to get it going. And, and that went on over years, and he got more angrier. And um, he had some violence where he f- fell out of a flat with some girl. But I'd not got to sort of distance. I'd gone and got kids then and sort of grown up a little bit. But um, Higgins... Higgins become sort of we do exhibitions and he would treat it you know he'd have goes at referees he just got a little bit very angry sort of like towards the end of his playing career then he got ill and his sister done everything she could for him you know I'd give him money which is probably not the best thing to do because he's a gambler but I offered him to come to London a couple of times he didn't want to know he went back to Belfast. His sister looked after him. He beat throat cancer, but unfortunately, he died of malnutrition because he never ate anything anyway. And um, you know, he just swivelled away at the end. And it was ten days before anybody found him, which is really, really sad. Come back to that if you may. But just talk about some more some great adventures with him in the book. The car crash. I mean, luckily yeah. nobody heard. Tell us about the car crash. Well, and Alex well, Higgins goes through the window. Well, I'm I'm. Um, I used to live in Oxshot. It's a beautiful part of Surrey. Um, most of Chelsea footballers live there now. And um, we'd gone out, me, him, and a friend of mine called Peewee, we'd gone out for a drink, and I had a mini Metro at the time. It was given to me for a sponsorship deal. And we went to this quiet village, and um, we got drunk, and my mate Peewee wasn't drinking, and then Alex started a little bit of an argument, so I said, look, I've had enough. We'll just go home now. I had a big snooker table in the house, a bar there, so we was going to carry on there. And on the way home, I'm driving, which I shouldn't have been driving, and I lost control of the car going round this bend, and I crashed into the wall. I had my seatbelt on, and my mate in the back had his seatbelt, and Higgins never. And fortunately, the window screen, as it hit the wall, must have sprung out. Higgins has gone flying through the window screen. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. No, he shouldn't laugh. But it was funny. It, it got funny, then it wasn't funny. He's then stood facing me, and he's gone, and I'm like in shock now. Yeah. And I'm, and he's the other side of this half broken wall, and he's gone. I've got nine lives, baby. So I'm like that. Get in the <laughs> car. 
<laughs> so we get up the road and we got these wipers trying to attack us. You know, we've got no window screen. The car front is all smashed up. Get into my house. And as we get into my house, the engine falls out of the bottom of the car. So if we if this would have happened when we were driving along, it would have just tipped over and obviously we would have all hit the road. Yeah. So I'm now thinking, you know, I'm like trying to get myself together and I'm in my house in the snooker room and Higgins is like, let's play, let's play snooker for money. This is the best time. The adrenaline's flying. Oh, God. And I've realised that my tax disc is on the window screen. So I phone a friend to go and get my tax disc. The window screen comes back with my tax disc. I know that I'm not going to get in trouble with the police. So I'm okay. And then he continued to want to play me for money. So in the end, I lost my temper. And he knew that um, I didn't speak to my neighbour because the neighbour wanted to me to cut these beautiful trees down. He was a writer, so he could write with the sunlight. And I said, you can't do that. I'm not going to do that. So he knew I didn't talk to him. He, I threw him out. He knocked on the guy's door and said that I'd attacked him. <laughs> and the guy gave him a lift to Reading. But that was Higgins for you. <laughs> Tell us, I've got to go, I must ask about the time as well because it's such a good tale um, about when you won um, two and a half uh, thousand Irish pounds um, uh, on the horses, but the bookmaker had done, done a bunk. Again, you and Alex had to take action. Well, what happened was we'd, um, Higgins had had one of his crazy bets where, like, he had two onto two horses. You know, unless you're like a, a compulsive gambler, it would take forever to explain. Anyway, we'd won. I'm not sure the amount. I think it was about twelve thousand um, pounds. In them days, it was an awful lot of money. And we've gone to the betting shop to pick the money up the next day. And there's this new sign up: maximum payout one thousand pounds. Oh! <laughs> so Higgins has gone absolutely. It was his money, not mine. He's gone mad. So we now pursued to find out where this bookmaker is. He's on a golf course, and we went to the golf course, found him on the on the green, and give him. Uh, loads of abuse for about half an hour until the police come and then we were sort of escorted off the golf course. You're being escorted off the but golf a book, course. But the bookmaker got told what he was because obviously he took a liberty by uh, not paying out. I mean, as you, as you alluded to a little earlier on, Alex Higgins came to a really s- sad, desperate end, really. Shocking. How, how did you first find out, Jim? Uh, I was away at the time in a tournament and uh, I'd not spoken to him for about three weeks and... Um, and we tried to get him on the Snooker Legends tour and uh, he just wouldn't practice, you know, and he wouldn't sort of look after himself. So that sort of went by. And then I was away somewhere and someone said, um, you know, that we got the message that he died and I was just totally in shock, totally, absolutely devastated because um, he was my friend and uh, we were we were close, you know, he fought the world of me. So, you know, it's just sort of still a sore point now, really. Do you think people, even now, understand just how brilliant a player he was and what he did for the game? I think they do. You know, obviously the youngsters are on the tour now. They don't even know who he was. But if they put, Does that bother you? Not really, because a lot of them would never have been able to do his shoelaces up. So, you know, I just take the notes of that. But, um, you know, when he played, it was packed. You could have 600 men in a venue that had been drinking for hours... Uh, come half past seven, the match would start, and they wouldn't. You wouldn't hear a pin drop. You try and get that. You try and get six hundred people now to be dead quiet when the match is on. You miss him still, absolutely. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Jimmy, I'm going to talk about the matches in just a second, but of course it's now part of folklore that you reached six World Championship finals. We're going to hear later on. Perhaps if you'd been uh, more professional and prepared, you'd probably probably reached a dozen, but you reached six World Finals, and famously you lost them all. Do you regret now that you didn't win a World Championship? Well, ask me that question when I'm retired. I'm still, I'm still playing. And I, should, I'm, I should tell the listeners that you, you said to me, oh, you're really practising hard and I'm you're pr- loving it, yeah? I'm playing really well and yeah. I, I ended up staying on the season, on, on the main tour last year, 64. I just hanged in there. I'm now 61 in the rankings, but my game, is I, I've been practising ever since. I wrote this book in the summer and besides the book, all I did was practise. So I'm uh, playing as good as ever. So ask me that question when I retire. All right, I'll ask you. I'll, I'll rephrase the question. If you don't become world champion, if you never win a world championship, do you think you'll regret it? Oh, I'd absolutely be devastated because I didn't prepare right. Okay. Um, the first of them, you lost to Steve Davis in 1984. Tell us about that one. Well, 84, I was, it was sort of at the height of uh, snooker. We've only been three or four channels, and we was all everybody knew everybody. And we had a fantastic match. Uh, the first day... I played, um, I was 12-4 down, and there was a guy called Jimmy Medicroft, who was a commentator, and he come up, he, I passed him in the hallway after the match, obviously I'm devastated, I'm 12-4 down, and he said, you keep sort of playing me tip, I said, it's a little bit hard, so I got the tip out, and he went, yeah, that is a bit hard, I said, well, now you've just confirmed it, I'm going to change it, so he put a new tip on for me, and at one o'clock in the morning, me and him are in the crucible theatre practising, which obviously wouldn't be allowed nowadays, and the next morning, I come out, I'm 12-4 down. I won the first four to go 12-8. The game after the interval, he's, um, I'm 50 in front with three reds left. Davis doubles the red and then pots the other two reds and two blacks to win that frame. And I won 
the next three. So if he doesn't get the double, how I was playing that morning, it had been 12 each, but it wasn't. It ended up 13-11, and he ended up beating me 18-16. That was my first taste of defeat in the final. I bet it, it felt horrible. I mean, obviously, you know that I wouldn't. But I'm guessing not so bad, because you probably thought, I'll be back in this final every year for the next 20 years. I had no problem at all. I thought I'd win it next year, for sure. Well... You didn't, um, but you do then reach, and this is one of the great runs, I think, in, in sporting history in this country. You reach five successive world title finals uh, in Sheffield between 1990 uh, and 1994, and you managed to lose all of them. What do you remember about, about those years, Jim, and, 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 and trying to win that world title? Well, the, the first one, the one after that in 91, I lost to John Parrott, who had an amazing seven frames of snooker. He probably played as good as anybody in them. He had, he had a, an amazing fluke on the third or fourth game. He, he, I snookered him and he swerved round to hit the ball and he potted it and cleared up. That was a bit, um, looking back now, that was a bit of a sickener because I might have stopped this mad sort of run he had. But he played fantastic snooker. He went 7-0 up and I could never catch him and he ended up winning the World Championships that year. I think it was 91. That's 91. You'd lost to Stephen Henry the previous yeah. year. When you meet John Parrott now, as you're around about, and, yep. um, does, it, does he ever remind you that he's been world champion and you haven't oh, look, Well, no, he doesn't remind me, but uh, <laughs> he gets introduced next to me as world champion, and I think, well, that could have been one of mine. But John Parrott's a credit to the sport. Um, great guy. He's moved on to do other things. He's done question sports, and I think he's on the after-dinner circuit, and he's a great commentator. The four other defeats were to Stephen Hendry. Um, did you think you were, were you, in a, were you in a position to win any of those matches? Um Two of them I, I, I threw away really. The one where I was 18, I was 14, 8 up. I was sitting in my seat and I was thinking who I was going to thank and who I wasn't going to thank. And I lost total concentration. And then before I knew where it was, he'd come on playing. He'd won three or four frames, got the bit between his teeth. And I could, uh, it wasn't pressure that particular one. I just lost focus. And he ended up beating me 18. 14. 14 from yeah. 14, 8 up. So that was obviously a hard one to swallow. But um, the other two, he beat me 18, 12, just outplayed me in that match. I was playing okay. And then he beat me 18, 5 or 18, 6. And I not practiced that year up to the World Championships. Not so how, right, I got, yeah. how I got to the final, I don't really know. So um, that was just a miracle in itself. <laughs> and then the... I'd say the closest one was when I lost 18-17. I was 17-16 down, 60-odd behind, managed to clear up to stay in the match 17 each. And the last game, had a fantastic opportunity, got down to the black and twitched it, like threw my cue at it, a bit like you do at golf sometimes. You get the yips with putting. I missed the black and uh, another world championship gone away from me. 92, you, as you, you mentioned there, you didn't win. You lost, you lost the final, but you also you made a lot of money, at least, because you got £100,000, which when £100,000 was £100,000, for making 147 break in, in the World Championship. Um, I think only six people have done it in total, and certainly I, we, we, we reckon, looking at you may be the in the World Championship, obviously, you may be the only left-handed person to have done it. What do you remember about that break? It was against Tony Drago. Yeah, well, it, the, the balls opened quite nice, and um, I, had, I had to go in and out of bulk a couple of times to um, to carry on to make the 147 so it was a bit special and it was very special to win at the world championships I actually got 147,000 
and 14,000 for the ice break. So I ended up with more money than Henry that year, even though I lost. Uh, what did you do with that money, Jimmy? I, I, I put it straight in the bank. No. I probably, <laughs> I probably as we talk later, probably set fire to it. Yes, indeed. Um, between the, talk about, I mean, obviously you, you came into a, a snooker world that was dominated initially by Steve Davis yep. and then latterly by Stephen Henry. Both of them, um, very different player from, from yourself. The contrast, of course, made you look even better and more flamboyant. Did you enjoy playing against players like that? Well, um, Stephen Hendry was a bit more of an attacking player than um, Steve Davis. Okay. He, he he went for the big shots, but um, he didn't look he didn't look sort of uh, he didn't do any sort of uh, flamboyant shots. But uh, his overall concentration and will to win and self belief was next to none. With Steve Davis, he was a tactical player. If you beat Steve Davis, I beat Hendry many times in different tournaments and if you beat Steve Davis you knew you'd had a match if you'd slaughtered Steve Davis you still felt that you'd climbed a mountain he just had a fantastic safety game you had to battle your way through and um, to me to me I'd say Steve Davis was more the harder opponent but I think Hendry was a prolific uh, break builder which was the which was the better player do you think overall um well, you'd have to say Stephen Henry because he won more world titles than Steve Davis. But for me, Davis was the hardest player to beat. And we'll talk about Ronnie O'Sullivan a little later on. Uh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he may have taken the game to places even yourself and Davis and Henry um, uh, weren't taking it I agree. Uh, back then. Let's talk, um, you know, the um, these, these defeats in the World Championship, they are what they are. Um, talk to me about some of the tournaments you actually won around this time. Because, of course, what people need to remember is that although you didn't win the World Championship, you were winning left, right and centre. I won um, I won 10 ranking tournaments during them years. I, my biggest one was in 92 when I won the UK Championships. Um, I beat Parrot in the final. Uh, I think I beat him 16-14, but it was a fantastic match. He played well. And I played well, and I was always one or two frames in front, and I kept that lead for right throughout the tournament to right to the end. Because normally a sporting sort of game, like darts and that, now one would go in front and one would catch catch up, and one might go in front, and it sort of like tipped turvy. But that particular match, I was always two frames in front. And I always uh, maintain my lead right till the end. So that was my biggest tournament today. And you won the 84 Masters uh, yeah. against uh, Terry Griffiths, which seems to me like a, another era of snooker. Terry was a, a you know a long time ago. Let me ask you, uh, what do you think was the best you ever played? Was it in an obscure snooker hall? Was it in one of these big tournaments? Or was there a phase in your life when you thought, I am, I am, what you know? But the modern parlance, Jimmy, is in the zone where you just knew everything I do is going to go right. Well, there was. Uh, a tournament in the NEC, I think it Black and Decker sponsored it. I'm not sure. It was two hundred thousand for the winner. It was unheard of. The World Championships was only fifty grand for the winner. And that particular week, I won the um, I won the doubles in it. I won the main event, and I got to the final of the mixed doubles, and um, I lost in the final of that. And I think that was the that was the time when I think I was pl playing at my best ever snooker, because I won. A ranking tournament straight after that so it's consistency like Henry would go from tournament to tournament winning I had a little spell of that I won three or four tournaments that year we've got a massive other things to talk about in the second half of this program um, but let me just ask you one other question I mean when you talk about the game um, you're not jaded you clearly love the actual mechanics of the game yeah. and playing snooker is there anything about it you don't like um, 
Uh, the qualifying system is where we're, we're playing at venues for the World Championships and it's not up to scratch. You know, you're playing in a, a venue which doesn't have the greatest facility for a, a tournament as big as the World Championships. But apart from that, the atmosphere throughout the world, China, the World Championships, the UK, you know, you couldn't wish to play in better venues. Since the publication of your new autobiography, the second autobiography you've done, called Second Wind, um, the book is very different from the first one. It, it appears to be a warts and all uh, job. And the, the, the central theme, I think, that's, that's changed between one book and the other is... You've been very candid about uh, how drugs played a huge part in your life. Indeed, took it over at various times. When did you first take drugs, Jimmy? Uh, I was very young. I'd say um, 17, 18. I sort of started um, to have the odd line of cocaine. And then, obviously, as it progressed through the years and everywhere you went out in the West End, it was everywhere to be had. And I sort of got used it over a period of about... 20 years perhaps and then at my worst time in my life I went from sniffing cocaine to smoking it which is called crack cocaine which I am say in the book which is the worst drug in the world it just makes you totally paranoid you don't get any any anything from it so if I stop one person having a line of cocaine or even thinking about having cocaine I'm pleased to hear and um since I've come out in the book, you know, I want to apologise to my family, to my friends and to my fans, you know, for not giving, you know, my preparation to most tournaments the respect that I should have done with the talent I've been given. But I'm working very hard. I'm playing very well at the moment. So I hope to try and put that right. But it's nice to get it out there. I've got about three to five years left at the top of the game and um, competing at the top level. So it's nice to get it off my shoulders. And if I say, if I stop 10 people ever thinking about using the devil's dandruff, I've done a good job. Let me remind people, because they'll, they'll now be asking, what's the book called again? It's called Second Wind. As you can get it in all good shops. Trinity Mirror Sports Medium, big publishing house, have put it out. My experience of drug, heavy drug users, Jimmy, is comes from the music industry, and it takes over their life in a kind of weird way. They they think it is their life; they're just running around having a great time. Yeah. Um, but they become devious. Um, they have to hoard away money. They have to tell stories to the people around them that they wouldn't, you know, normally have to tell. How about how about for you? How did you fund this this habit? Well, I was a professional. You know, I was such a professional. You know, coming from the snooker, I knew all where to get drugs and you know how to find where the drug dealers were and all that and then i started doing it secretly but when i'd done the crack cocaine i had um it was with kirk stevens i had about um i think it was about 33 grand or 32 grand in the banking account and within one month i'd spent the 32,000. and uh, you become very devious you 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 lie to people you don't um you know i hid it from my kids and from my ex-wife but I used to a lot of the times with my ex-wife I would say that I'm playing poker and I'd be gone for a couple of days but I was actually doing the cocaine I want to come back to your kids and this in just a second but lots of people certainly in the, in the social world of wealthy people in this country we all know um, that cocaine is a very prevalent, prevalent drug very few people then make the jump to crack which you know uh, has we've seen what it's done in America to whole 
yeah. swathes of inner cities where people have become addicted and given up on their lives and things. How did that happen for you? Um, I don't really know. I think we're doing so much cocaine and um, we just... Um decided to dabble a bit and uh, in the end we become very good at it and very good at cooking it and getting together it was like a chemist in some of the places we were going in but um with that you get it it you get the purity of the cocaine and you get the hit which only lasts for 20 seconds and then you're trying to recreate that hit that you got which never happens and all you do is end up paranoid and it is the worst drug out there it's a mental drug you don't your body doesn't need it so much like heroin and um you become you know you become a zombie and uh i had on and off because i was my problem was at the beginning i was a very big drinker and you could you could go out and have like 10 15 drinks start sort of falling all over the place you have a couple of lines of cocaine it feels like you just come out the door so you know and having an addictive personality in everything i've done um, it was the worst thing in the world for me to get it. And being devious and being my own person, I was um, able to carry on doing it without anybody knowing. Tell us about this event then with Kirk Stevens. I mean, uh, you know, we all know that uh, Kirk ha- had issues and it was you and he who d- sort of disappeared for this lost month of... Crime. Yeah, it was, it, you know, I was... In a way, you know, I I used him a bit because I could go round there. There was a person who loved cocaine and I could go round there and just be with another cocaine user. And I remember once um, I knocked on his door unannounced and uh, he come to the door and I had an apple in my hand and uh, I was fresh. And um, he grabbed the apple off me and and he completely annihilated it. And I just more or less got the core before he ate that as well. Where he'd been in the home for three days he'd not eaten he was that starving that he just he just grabbed it and that's how it got you you know it's um so if anyone's ever thinking about ever sucking the devil's is what i call the cocaine pipe Mm -hmm. you know walk away from it because it will mess your life up did you get formal health to come off these drugs jim no, I just well, I was very lucky. I, I, I had that month to five weeks. In between there, we went to Ireland for a tournament, lost in the first round. And I went to um, I went to America straight after that month for three weeks. And um, had a couple of days feeling a bit sort of glassy and a bit shaky. And then within three or four days, I completely had, um, started to clean up. And when I come back, I never ever touched it again. Did you I miss never, it? No, I hated it. I hated it. I hated the paranoia, see, but it gets hold of you. It gets, you know, you see some people, like weekend takers of cocaine, they have a few drinks, and then they find, very rarely people take cocaine without having a few drinks, mm-hmm. a bit of Dutch courage. But the crack cocaine, he's the most addictive drug there is out there. It's diabolical. I'm going to ask you about, the, about your effect on your snooker playing in a second, but first, how old are your kids now? My, my eldest is 34 to 26, 25, So they're grown 24. people. So did you talk to them about revealing all this before you wrote the book? Absolutely. I sat them all down and uh, told them, you know, that I'm going to um, come up with the truth about... Um, did they know all this? No, they didn't know all this at all. And, uh, you know, some of them, they were shocked. But then my kids, they love me. I love them. Two of them live with me now. So um, it was OK. But the difficult one was my son. He's 16 years of age. Uh-huh. And he's still at school. And um, obviously... There might be some people, to, but, you know, it, it, in a way, it might, uh, you know, I sat him down, spoke about drugs, told him about how I got uh, hooked on this, and um, he's OK. He's quite a strong lad. Which takes us to the question, then, this is all going on when you're still, you know, one of the great snooker players in the world. 
how did it affect your performance as snooker player? Um, well, to be quite honest, I was that good. You know, even though I'd won these tournaments, got to six finals, there was lots of tournaments where I lost first rounds in world championships and in other tournaments. And um, obviously people feel a bit that they've been sort of shortchanged because I wasn't giving it 100%, and I apologise to them. But I was hooked on this evil drug. But what would happen is if there was a tournament, say, the beginning of the month, like the the last two weeks before the tournament, the, the month before, I'd I'd clean up and practice, but oh, there, sorry, Jim, to, to interrupt. Is there drug testing in snooker? Yes, absolutely. And lucky enough for me, the love for the game made me, you know, always clean up ten days, eight days before a tournament, so that I would never get caught taking the cocaine because I wasn't stupid. You know what I mean? Even though I'd suffer, but as you know, if you're coming off drink. And cocaine binges, you know, that would take you three or four days before your head's even fairly clear. And then you're practising, so my preparation was non-existent. Do you think you would have won more tournaments if you'd had a, a, a more normal lifestyle? I'd have won plenty more tournaments, you know. I'm, I'm obviously a bit disappointed about that, but I can't change history. I mean, obviously, in the big tournaments, you you say there was drug testing, so you got off it. Do you ever, can you ever remember playing high? No, I never played stoned. Never even played in an exhibition stoned. I wouldn't. It's the, the drug. It makes you too paranoid. You wouldn't be able to do it. The balls would look like um, footballs, you know. Okay, you've you've revealed this in the book now, and through interviews like this, I think the word is getting out, and all the rest of it. What has been the reaction of other people? And are you glad that you've you've revealed this part? Yourself? Uh, honestly, it's like a, it's a tremendous weight off my shoulders. I've been asked, been doing this book for. Um, for about 10 years and I've, and I've always wanted to tell you know this demons that I had I went into the jungle five years ago at the time snooker was in a sort of like seven or eight years ago before Hearns took it over in the last five years so it was in a very bad very bad place and I thought about doing it then and then this last year I managed to stay on the tour 64 and I'm, I'm in a good place in my life now, and uh, I'm playing very well. So I thought I'd get it out there. And the reaction I've had, I've had people phoning me that I haven't spoke to for 20 years, basically seeing if, if I'm okay. You know, now it's all out there thinking, you know, am, am I skin? Am I doing it because of that? Da -da -da -da, am I healthy and fine? So the reaction has been really positive, and I've had so many letters and emails uh, from my fans to my website I'm just absolutely delighted with the support and I can't thank them enough We well, should talk about um, illness in your life in and around you because um, in 1995 you were diagnosed it says here in my notes with testicular cancer but of course it wasn't your common or garden everyday testicular cancer was it what happened no well, it was um, I, I was in I was in the shower and I felt I felt an unusual lump and um since that, with the late Lord Litchfield, we've done a, a campaign for youngsters to, if they have any lumps that are abnormal, you know, to especially young lads, teenagers, there, the stigma of telling their mum and dad that they have a lump, you know, they let it go too far, and then unfortunately it can be too late. So if anyone does an abnormal lump anywhere down there, you know, to get it seen, go to your GP on your own. If you don't feel like telling your parents, just tell a teacher, make sure you get it checked out. Because nine times out of ten, it's nothing. 
But my one, I had um, an unusual lump. One of my testicles was very hard and a small little lump on the side of it. I was in the shower. So I went to see my doctor, Dr. Draper, and he said, I don't like the look of this. Sent me to Ashton Hospital. Within 48 hours, I had... um, the operation and I had it taken out and I was very lucky I didn't have to have any chemotherapy or anything. They removed one of your testicles. One of my testicles and they actually said to me we can put a ping pong ball back in there or I said could I have a snooker ball one of the small <laughs> ones they said it'd be too heavy but um, my one was called Lady Leg which is very very rare and it was a professional uh, this professor sorry uh, Hodgkinson who um, treated me said um, he talked about it for quite a few cinemas because it's, it's not been found in Europe for 20 years. So this is a really rare version of the Very disease. Very rare, yeah. I should make the point for people who are listening since you're talking about campaign and of course you've had your son Tommy since then, you know, yep. the, the, it, people go on to the, have perfectly normal lives, doesn't it? That's why we're given to, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I went on to have my son and, uh, you know, touch wood, I'm okay. Well, good. Well, it's good to hear about that. Um, less happily, obviously, your brother Martin. Um, you described at the top of the show how much you love your family and how close you all are. Um, your brother Martin had uh, lung cancer um, and died a couple of years after your own incident, and obviously yeah. still a very young man. Tell us about that. Well, that was a horrendous time for me and my family, you know, to watch my mum and dad lose a child. Um, my brother Martin was, um, you know, was a hard-working guy, and um, he got he got cancer, and we never thought he was going to die. And uh, my uncle died, and he come out the hospital for the funeral. And my other brother turned around, who was only a year difference between him and Martin, said he's not going to make it. And um, two weeks later, unfortunately, he passed away. So we was all absolutely devastated. Um. In the book, there is an extraordinary story attached to that. Obviously, a terrible, terrible uh, family tragedy. Um, nobody, you know, unless you've had someone die young, you won't understand how bad it is. But it's an amazing story. That, uh, you took your brother's corpse out for a drink. Yes. You know, some people might find it, um, you know, they they can't comprehend it, which I can understand that. But at the time, it felt natural. We was It was me and my brother and my driver and my sister in a pub opposite the funeral place and um, we're all in shock there's the floods of tears for hours and hours and hours and um, we've been to see him and um, all of a sudden I just said well I'm going over to see him again and like a couple of them tried to stop me especially my driver Mick and um, I went over there and there was this big padlock on this chain and I don't know what I was doing or what I was thinking of doing anyway I just kicked this chain and the padlock just fell off so obviously hindsight it wasn't the padlock wasn't done up it was there for show we went in there um and then all of a sudden now we're laughing with him and talking and sat him up and um you know like still crying our eyes out talking to him and then i just said like let's take him out let's take him out and uh i took him to a couple of um places for a drink and then I took him round to my brother's house and then we took him back about five or six o'clock in the morning and uh, put him back exactly how he was tried to put the chain back on and um, about two days later the police come to my house to arrest me for breaking entry and when I explained the story to them they said well look nothing was stolen if you just go and apologize to the funeral director I'm sure it'll be fine and that was the end of the matter 
Jimmy, obviously, uh, everyone deals with grief in different ways. But you yeah. know that people listening to your voice now, where let's let's make it into a sentence, you've taken your brother's body out of the funeral home and taken him on, let's be fair, a tour of, of, of boozers. Um, they'll, they'll think this is insane. Well, it was insane, but it just felt natural at the time. You know, we were such in shock and such grief and, you know, a little bit of anger as well, you know, and I didn't really... Uh, I remember my this guy Mick, who's actually passed since, you know, screaming at me, you know, and he'd obviously seen me do some crazy things in my time, screaming at me, you know, what did you do? And this is like absolute madness. But I just said, you know, either you drive or I drive, and I was in no fit state to drive, so he drove. Did anybody in during? I've got to ask. Did anybody notice that you had a, a body with you? Um, well, to be in another sad story, Mick had now given up about five thirty. Uh, in the morning, I think he'd um, given, given he'd had enough, you know. Like uh, he loved me, but um, that was too much. And we actually got a cab to take him back to the funeral parlour. And the Indian cab driver said he doesn't look too well. He was sitting in the back, and I said he's fine. He's just a bit drunk, so he didn't even know that he had a dead body in the car. So anyway, you know that was that. But yeah. um, it happened, and um, what can I say? Yeah. Well, you know, death is very much part of life. And I guess that was brought home to the snooker world when Paul Hunter, one of the absolute rising stars of the game, and a very young man, um, 27 years of age, in 2006 was struck down. Absolutely horrendous. You know, he was um, just at the height of his career. He liked to have a party and he, he liked to have a bit of fun, Paul Hunter, but he was a serious practitioner. He won three... He won three uh, Masters championships, and he lost to Hen he lost to Ken Doherty in one of the semi-finals. He was 17-12 up and lost. Uh, sorry, 16-12 up, lost 17-16. You know, so he could have been world champion. I'm sure he would have gone on to win it. But he always thought that he would get cancer, Paul Hunter. Why? I'm I don't sorry. know. I don't know. He had a strange feeling that he was always going to get cancer. And um, when he got hit ill and um, went on to die, you know, it was just just an horrendous as well because he was well-loved. All the players loved him. There was no hairs and graces about him. He was just who he was and a fantastic player and a really beautiful lad. In an enclosed world, I guess, because you, you, well, snooker's one of those activities where you all, you know, one day you're all playing in Dublin, the next day you're all in Macau, the next day you're all in Adelaide... Um, it's a it's a very closed world. Does does something like that happening really affect the group? Absolutely, especially if you're real good friends with him, which I was. Even though I was a lot older than him, you know, I seen him come on the scene. I see he was a bit of a drinker, and um, I give him the top advice I could give him, like I give O'Sullivan. But if you're sort of uh, out and about, you know, so spend a lot of time with him. But golfers and snooker players, because it's an individual sport, they all travel together. You're trying to beat each other on the table, but at the end of the day as well, you're all trying to earn a living. So you you intend to get on, and I become real good pals with Paul Hunter. So I was devastated when he died. How good a player could he have been, in your opinion? Or, or, or well, he at was... 27, are you already as good as you're going to be? No, no. Ray Reardon didn't win the World Championships till he was 35. So um, I think he could have gone on to win the World Championship for sure. He was that. He was he had great cue ball control. I'll finish this section by asking you, the book, as we discussed, Second Wind, is full of the revelations about your drug use. There's that incredible story about taking your brother's cadaver around with you. 
I shouldn't say it to you. He's your brother. It yeah. was your brother. I understand that. Um, have you left anything for the third for the third autobiography, Jimmy? Um, no, only only when I win this world championships, how I won it. Um, Jimmy's book is called Second Wind, and the people at uh, Trinity Mirror Sport Media have got it out there. It's it, it's there. We already talked about why he did it, so we'll leave that. But it, it really is worth uh, telling people uh, just how good it is. So many other things we need to talk about, Jimmy. Um, as you say, you've done some fairly hair raising things in your time, but very few. People have changed their name from one colour to another. In 2005, um, I presume for money, you changed your name from Jimmy White to Jimmy Brown. Yeah. But, but people thought, I think people thought that was just something, a name on a piece of paper. You actually cha- went the whole hog. They, they, um, they filmed me getting my credit cards took off me in a petrol station. <laughs> because in them days, if your credit cards like were cancelled... They used to take them. Remember, they used to cut them up in yeah. shops and that. Yeah. So um, what it was, they give me some money to change my name from Jimmy White to Jimmy Brown. By, by they, you mean the people that make HP Sauce. HP know, Sauce. Lovely, bra- lovely brown me, confection. But they, yeah. but they match the money with a charity, cool. so, uh, with children in need. So it was an absolute pleasure to do it. Brilliant. I was getting money. The charity was getting money. And I had to change my name by Depot. And the guy who was presenting the Masters in Wembley wouldn't uh, and wouldn't call me Jimmy Brown. And there was a big dispute before I went on. This went on from 6 o'clock. I remember you wearing o'clock. a brown suit as well. Did you have to wear... I wore a brown <laughs> suit with a white bow tie with a splash of sauce on it. <laughs> and I sat on a big... Um, and a big HP sauce bottle and done all the photos. And um, they changed my name by Depot. And the presenter... Sorry, the MC, the Master of Ceremonies, wouldn't announce me, wouldn't call me uh, Jimmy Brown. So he just said, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce Jimmy. And uh, it was a bit of a, there was a bit of a sort of an argument going on for about an hour. But that was a, a, a but the publicity they got out of that was amazing. It was a very good move. Have you changed your name back? Formally? Certainly, straight after. But you actually did. You sort of, changed my name by yeah. Depot. My yeah. name was changed for two weeks. OK, listen, thank you for that. Um, we're going to talk about other sports that you've been involved in or other pastimes. Um, you talked um, earlier on about how you've got an addictive personality. Um, you grew up in a gambling um, environment. And you've, you've, by your own admission, you've, you've spent plenty of money on, on gambling, won some and lost some. But you really, really got to be very good in the, in the boom that happened about 10 years ago in televised poker. You were right in the front of that. Yeah, I've, I've always played poker from when I was a kid. It was just part of the snooker life. It was part of the gambling life. You'd be dogs, um, and then you'd go on to private card games, and now you have poker in casinos. In them days, you didn't have it. So I always knew how to play poker. Did you? Sorry, I'm getting into details here. Did you grow up playing Texas Hold'em? Because I think that's a relatively new thing in no, this country. I used to, no, we used five to, card, we used to... We yeah. used to well, you played five card. We used to play seven card, which right. was two down, four up, and the last one down. You squeezed on the sixth card. But it's the same principle. Texas Hold'em is the same principle. You know, it's just the flops in the middle. And... Um, Two cards, base cards. So as soon as that game became popular, it went from seven card to playing Texas Hold'em. And um, through knowing how to play poker and being a, a snooker player, I got invited to lots of tournaments. And this particular tournament I was in called the Poker Million. And, and because I'm a bit of a loose player like my snooker, I like to take chances. But when you get good cards, you get paid. And I'm playing in the Poker Million. And... Um, Straight, we're playing for hours. I've got a fair amount of chips, and um, my cards have come up four, six of clubs. So I've passed, 
and the flop was big, like meaning mm-hmm. like a rainbow flop of um, pictures. So very next hand, I get four six of clubs pass again, and the flops come high again. So I thought, well, I'll just call this. And then I've got the third hand, sorry, I've got four six of spades, which is really unusual. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll, have a, I'll call this one because the flop's been high. And the flop's come four a six. So the guy's got aces with a big kicker. But you've got two pairs. I've got two pair. Dave stood up. I then got a, a, a tremendous amount of chips. And uh, I went on to win the Poker Million. And how much money did you actually win? Um, well, it was it was called the Poker Million, but I won $250,000. Wow. What is it you get out of, out of snoo- out the poker? You clearly enjoy it. Um, I don't play so much now. No. When it was in its boom, and many years ago I used to play it a lot, and then at most snooker tournaments for about two years, every every player had like his cue and a and also a case full of poker chips but it sort of dwindled out now a lot of people play online i still like watching it and if i ever go to a casino with the lads i might play for a couple of hours but i'm not got the addiction for poker anymore no also i think i think the world has changed hasn't it um everybody who plays now has has They've not like you learned to play in card schools. They've played millions of hands online, haven't they? Because you can play, you know, incredibly quickly online, get through a lot, a lot of hands. And they've, they've all, there's a, I'll put it this way, there's a lot of very, very good poker players out there now because you, you, you just get so practised. Absolutely. You know, they're, they're the best players in the world now, you know, you've got the Phil, Phil Ivies and Helmet and people, Devilfish, you've got them top players. But... The players today who are playing for the big money in the Bellagio and the big casinos like the Victorian London, they're young kids are between 20 and 25. They've got like a couple of million quid behind them that they've won online and they're playing live poker and their sort of strategy is more ma- mathematical than, than Phil and uh, they're cleaning up because they're fearless. Um, do you gamble much these days? If I go to the uh, races, I might have 50 quid on a horse or I might have a, a 50 quid acro at the weekend with a football, but that's not gambling to me, that's fun. Well, just as you admit you don't miss um, the drugs that we talked about earlier because there was a bad time in your life, yep. do you miss blowing a load of money on, on, on gambling? No, I, I get just as much buzz going to the races and cheering one on. Obviously, I don't... I don't um, See, where I was sort of so mixed up in the drink, the gambling and the drugs, you know, like you'd win, but you still feel numb. You'd lose, you'd feel numb. You know, you'd only get it the next day. So I go now purely for the pleasure. Let's talk briefly about pool, because um, you're, it turns out you're a fantastic pool player. You helped um, Britain beat America, the home of pool, in the Moscone Cup, which is like the Ryder Cup. Um, should I be surprised? But surely people are good at... Well, you started on pool. You said that yeah. yourself. Are all snooker players good at pool? All top snooker players can play eight ball pool. They can't play nine ball pool. Nine ball pool is bigger balls and yep. heavier cues, and, and you great have big gaping holes. Very big gaping holes, and you have to whack um, to break the balls. You have to hit them so hard. Snooker players don't have that cue action, but pool players can't play snooker at all. Why is, is that? Then? I think it's because of the smaller pockets, the bigger size table, and. Um, I don't know. I just think. I just think. You know. I appreciate the skill of Paul, but I'm I'm an average eight ball player, but I'm not a good nine ball player. But we did win the nine ball Moscone Cup because we had Oliver Ortman 
another German guy and Alex Higgins and uh, I managed to pop the balls to win that so that was a great achievement for me Do you play pool at all now? I play the odd exhibition now and yeah. again because they can't get me into um, they can't get a hall big enough for a snooker table so the occasion I go to a pub and um, there'll be three or four hundred watching and I'll play 25 games of pool I don't mind it Sorry this, this question has just occurred to me as well do you, uh, do you take any delight when you see those people who, who uh, I see on television who make a living making trick shots on snooker tables I think it's fantastic that guy that French guy yeah. at Waterloo Station is just amazing uh, Can you do any trick shots yourself I can do I do loads of trick shots during exhibition Yeah, yeah but, but, but he's launching balls into baskets that then no, come I can't, and, and dogs <laughs> jumping through hoops and all that No, but, it, but they interviewed him and he and apparently can't pot a ball playing pool. Well, that's what I was going to say. Mad. It's a different thing. Listen, Jim, in 1999, um, despite never having won the World Championship yet, you got the MBE. Just another day for you, or were you one of those very proud of that? Oh, no, listen, absolutely delighted to get the MBE. I remember the day well. Me and my dad and uh, my wife, we went to Buckingham Palace, and it was an amazing day because I was with Tony Adams. Right. He was getting his MBE, and... Um, we was at the back because we were sports people and obviously, you know, we're waiting to go in and they, they teach you how to bow with your majesty and get ready and all that. And I didn't think for a second that she would know about snooker. And her opening line was to me, why do they put snooker on so late at night? <laughs> so I was in shock, really. So I had a brief to it, but tremendous amount of... Um, Heroes were there, like firemen, policemen, soldiers. So we was a bit humble, me and Tony Adams, and uh, I spent a couple of hours in. But it was um, one of my greatest achievements in life. If your friend has all your snooker trophies, where's the MBE medal? Oh, the MBE's with me at home. But my my when I moved, my I had a few snooker tables, and Archer took all my trophies and my. Um, couple of tables that I have and they're in his house okay um like everybody who reached a certain level of celebrity and you know what's coming next in in British life um you get offered to do a reality tv show now I think you know dancing on ice etc all those sort of things fine um I think the, the real one to go on is I'm a celebrity get me out of here in the jungle and all that sort of thing yeah um you could have turned it down. Why did you do it in 2009? Uh, well, Snooker was... This is just before Barry Hearn took over Snooker. Snooker was in a desperate situation. No there, prize money, there was no, there no was, TV coverage. There were six tournaments a year. They were on TV, but the, it was being run by Snooker players and uh, it was going downhill fast. And this opportunity come along to be I'm, I'm a celebrity get me out of here the money was good yeah and I went in there were you a fan of the show previously yeah You'd yeah seen I watched it, yeah. it a couple of times and I went in there with um, Gino and Katie Price and at that time Katie Price had um, fallen out with um, oh what's his name Oh, uh, Peter Andre. Peter Andre. Sorry, Peter. <laughs> um, she and him had fallen out. So I knew that there's no way in the world that we're doing any trials. So every morning that Ant and Deck come and sat on them logs with us, or come we all sitting on a log, I knew we weren't doing any trials. And I got to meet Justin and Colin, and um, I met George Hamilton, which I knew who he was. No one knew. I knew who he was because I'm a pal of Ronnie Woods. I remember when he went... Um, with Rod Stewart's ex-wife, or vice versa, I can't think. So I knew all about him, and he was his film star, and he was a great character, and I had a fantastic time in there. I was going to say because it's all it all seems to be about trials and, and tribulations and privations. Did you actually enjoy it? Well, you bond. 
you know, I, I, I need to go back in there to lose some pudding. I lost two stone, <laughs> and they had you bond. My job was to get the water. But um, Katie Price, being the clever girl she is, businesswoman, she knew that when it come time for her to be voted out, that she she would get voted out. So what she did, she left, and she turned the Versace Hotel into a media frenzy. But I had 21 days in there. I bonded with everybody in there, except for Joe Bogner. I fell out of him a few times. Why? Well, he was a bit... Um, he was just... He, he was a bit rude. You know, he was a bit rude to the girls, and... Uh, you know, he was he was just he was a bit. Uh, he's a big guy, so I can't say too much. But um, I was going to say you picked the wrong one to fall out with. Yeah, there. no, he was. But I I I really did enjoy it. Okay, let's talk about um, as we're getting towards the end of the program. I'd love to. Uh, I'm more actually pleased to talk about snooker in the present day now because you're you've told me both off and in this interview. Um, that you're really determined to play as well as you possibly can, and you're lucky. You're in a sport where, I mean, you can tell me, uh, is there any reason why you shouldn't be able to play until you're 60, you know? Well, not at all. You know, uh, Steve Davis plays, um, he's 55 now, he's sort of semi-retired, he plays an invitational tournament. I'm still on the main tour. Obviously, as you get to my age, if your eyes are okay, and you still have, the, you've got to have the desire to practice, and I've always had that, thank God. Tell me, tell me and the listeners, how a top professional snooker player how much practice do you do you have to do you have to do at least three to four hours a day six days a week high level practice not just knocking the balls no no you have to do you have to practice safety potting position you have to go and play other top players if you don't you can't win when O'Sullivan God love him says that you know I don't want to play anymore and all that I know he'll be back because you don't get that good without putting millions of hours worth of practice in but my game is uh, very good at the moment, and uh, I'm on the main tour, and uh, I know that if I can take, you know, um, my form onto the match table, I can win any tournament. So while that's still there, I still believe I can win. Which is one of the reasons, then, I'm happy to talk to you about the present-day game, because you're still very much part of it. Um, you've already uh, t- spoken about how the, the Hearn operation has completely turned the sport around again. We see it all over the world. Yep. Television coverage on every channel. Um, and, and all, all those sorts of things. What about the standards, Jimmy? Compare it to when you started 30-odd years ago. Well, there wasn't so many players around. And so, obviously, like in any sport, we're talking about footballers now, how much better they are. Obviously, it wasn't... Fitter. As fitter, faster, more skillful. But, you know, you had your greats. But in, in the snooker, when it first started, there wasn't that amount of players around. There wasn't videos and DVDs for them to learn all the moves. You know, you'd see the automation shot on the telly and you go and practice it. Nowadays, you just click on the internet, find the shot and practice it. Now, I thought Steve Davis, of his consistency, you know, took the game to a new level. Then this kid come, Stephen Hendry, who just never looked like missing under pressure or ever and obviously myself I contributed a little bit Mm. and then uh, he took it to another level which I think didn't think could be topped and then this Ronnie O'Sullivan come along who's an absolute genius and um, his match the other day with Judd Trump took it to an even higher level so Snooker's in real good shape at the moment well talk let's talk about the current superstar of the game then um he's a bit unlucky Ronnie in that uh, if he'd been around when yourself and Steve Davis and, St- and Stephen Henry when the money was there he'd be a global superstar but um what you use the word genius I mean you're a genius so what do you mean by that when you say that about about Ronnie O'Sullivan well Ron- Ronnie O'Sullivan um as soon as he pops the ball, he's already like four or five shots ahead to smash the pack open to win the frame. Most people in any sport are just taking what's there 
and then then deciding to take the risk of opening them up. He's got that ability to try and win the game in one visit and straight away, which makes him a little bit special to the rest. Do you know him? I know him very well. He's a terrific lad. Yeah, I was going to say, because he... Uh... He often does this thing, doesn't he, on TV and in press conferences and things, where he appears to be quite troubled. He, and he says things that you don't hear from other professional sports people and all the rest of it. What's that about? Well, I think I think he might have turned the corner now because he's been seeing this guy called Dr Peters who was with Liverpool last year when they had their tremendous amount of form. I think Ronnie's been with him three years. And I think he is here to stay. And I don't think you'll hear him talking about retirement. I don't think he likes travelling. I don't think he likes going to China and places. But believe you and me, boy, he's here playing fantastic snooker. And thank God for the game. When you mention China, I mean, obviously we see Marco Fu and other players from that part of the world coming through now. When you go there... Um, does it remind? Are you, I mean, how big is the game in China? Are you are you all stars when you get over there? We are. We're very. We're you know, snooker in China. Ding is like um, he's a national hero, and Marco Fu is in Hong Kong. But yeah. the, when we're talking about you know, can you still play snooker at my age? The only downfall I do have is the travelling does knock the pipe out here. You know, when you're twenty, thirty, even forty, it was easy to. Um, you you know travel, but now it does it does tire you a bit. But my love for the game and my adrenaline to play in big matches, I get through it as best I can. Where, where can snooker go? I mean, I mean, I'm sure you've had this conversation with other players and officials. Um, you know, sit, sitting around late at night because there's a lot of sitting around in snooker because the game takes a long time to play. It's reaching other parts of the world. Can it ever get back to the kind of real popularity in this country that it had 30 years ago? Where can the game go? Well, the game, thanks to O'Sullivan, um, his style of play, the game has got bigger and bigger and bigger and it's, and it's spreading throughout the world. And that's why Barry Hearn is taking it to new countries and hopefully it will always be in the crucible, but it's getting bigger each year. There's more people playing than ever before. What they've done with darts couldn't be done with snooker, I guess, insofar as with the darts, it's all about the audience now, yeah. isn't it? The, the sport has become the incredible atmosphere they develop there. You know, let's be fair, plenty of drinks taken, everyone's having a roaring good time, and the darts players are almost, it's sometimes incidental to that, as you can see. You can't do that with snooker. No, you can't do that with snooker, and I watched Phil Taylor play a tournament a couple of weeks ago, and he actually, the crowd were getting to him. He was in Scotland, the first time I've ever seen yeah, him he got annoyed, didn't he? lose his call. But, um, you know, they're having a good time. I would say, out of the percentage of them there, that you probably only have 25% of them are actual dart fans. I think most of them are just going for the good night out. Have you? They tried various variants of speed snooker. Yeah. Does Does it work for you? No. Well, it. it you the, should be a natural at it, of course. You know, me and O'Sullivan were fine at the prem, uh, the Premier League. That was fine for us. 30 seconds is more than ample. But you know, it takes all types of players to make every sport, and it just doesn't work in snooker. You're still a very young man. Um, and I guess when you've had things like happen to you, like your brother dying, you uh, you realise that you want to live life to the to the full. Um, what are your? We talked about your professional ambitions, but what about your your own? Where are you now in your life, and what are you hopeful for yourself and your family going forward? Uh, I'm uh, my daughter's getting married next year. I'm really looking Congrats. forward to are that. You, are you paying? Of course. Bless you. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that. I'm um, I'm in a very good place in life. My snooker's top again I'm really playing well I'm really enjoying that and I'm going to play for another sort of three to five years and then I'm going to calm it down from travelling to China 
and all the places abroad and just play maybe in the UK. And I might go into managing some players, having a look at some talent, because there's lots of kids out there and not looked after who have sort of gone by the wayside. I wish I'd have had sort of my life in order that I could have sort of took care of them. So I might do that. I might do a little bit of commentary, but I would always love to be involved in the game. I've still got great passion for the game. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top talk sport content. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.